Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, and I'm your host for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Inafarver Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today, we'll be discussing a subject that's very deep and important to my heart, which is lung cancer and sexual health. Although lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer death in both men and women in the United States and many countries around the world, we still continue to talk a little bit about lung cancer survivorship. It's important to remember that lung cancer survivorship starts the day of diagnosis and it lasts until the end of a person's life. Several aspects are very unique to people with lung cancer, including the stigma associated with the disease, the unique symptoms, and the new improved survival that 10 years ago was not possible and now tends to target therapy we have patients living decades with a stage four lung cancer. But one aspect of living with with and beyond lung cancer that's often not discussed is sexual health. Sexual concerns are common in people with lung cancer and survivors. However, people with lung cancer receive none to little information on this topic before they start treatment or even after they start treatment. Today, we'll be discussing how to address, maintain, and some of the data that is out there about sexual health and lung cancer. It is my pleasure to introduce our two guests today. First, we have Dr. Sharon Bober, a clinical psychologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, founder and director of the Sexual Health Program, associate professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Bober, to Lung Cancer Considered. Thank you. So happy to be with you today. We also have Dr. Mary Jo Filler, Section Chief of the Division of Hematology and Oncology in Cell Therapy at Roche Medical College and a Professor of Medicine at Roche Medical College. Welcome, Dr. Filler. Thank you so much for having me. I have been working with these two amazing ladies for years and this subject. So let's start. Sharon, I'm going to address you by first name because we know each other and I obtained the permission of both of my guests to address them by first name. Let's start with defining what is sexual health and what are all the aspects of sexual health that are often included when we mention this term? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for asking that question because I think Often when people hear sexual health, um, we sort of think about sex and sexuality in a very narrow perspective. And, And really, when we're talking about sexual health, I think it's important that we think very broadly and appreciate that this is really about, um, well being and quality of life with 
regards to not just physical sexual well-being, but how we think and how we feel, um, our relationships, our capacity to give and receive pleasure, as well as experiences like identity and body image. So it's really related to well-being and sexuality, but really encompasses a very broad range of experiences that really are uh, characteristic across the, the lifespan. Sharon, how many ways can people express love, affection, that's also part of sexual health? Well, the reality is that people have all kinds of ways of expressing intimacy, connection, love. And when we think about uh, what that means in terms of sexuality and intimacy, you know, it doesn't it, it looks different, right? Depending on the context, depending on the type of relationship. And I, I, I think most importantly, um, you know, sometimes people say to me, do you need to be sexually active, for example, to have an intimate relationship or a loving relationship? And of course, the answer is, is that there are all kinds of ways to be in a close and intimate relationship that include um, you know, feelings of romance or feelings of connectivity, connection, and that may be physical. It may not be physical. It may have been physical at one time, and that may look different at another time. But what I would say, NJ, is that what's important, I think, in the context of cancer and cancer treatment is that lots of things get disrupted, including the many different aspects of sexuality and that for some people, it's really bothersome, you know, and for some people, it may not be bothersome. But if we don't ask about it, and we don't know if it's if it's bothering any one person in particular, then we sort of just ignore an entire aspect of quality of life. So I think the point I want to convey is that if there's something that is different and bothersome to anyone, then it deserves attention, right? It deserves care. And that's why I guess we're having this conversation today. As a follow-up question to that, um, I focus a lot when I talk to my patients about sexual health within selves, you know, to start within self. What mm -hmm. is your position about this in talking about self-stimulation and your own love and sexuality before you well, involve your partner, friend, yeah. neighbor? Yeah, well, so you just used the word loss, and I really want to pause and acknowledge that right there, because I think that we often don't acknowledge that often there is an enormous sense of loss when it comes to sexual health, in that sometimes things are different, and they really feel like a loss, and that's real. I think what's important is to both be able to acknowledge some of that and allow people to find a roadmap for moving forward, for being able to live with some of those changes, perhaps, and be able to expand and go beyond the current experience so that things can feel better, right? Things can be more satisfying. So when you talk about, um, you know, where you start with that, I think for each individual, it's often really important to start with just figuring out what are their goals? What are their feelings and thoughts? How do you learn to feel comfortable in oneself, in one's body again, um, when people have gone through enormous amounts of treatment and experiences that can feel kind of damaging? So I think you're right. It's really important to give people permission to start by figuring out just for themselves, 
what's interesting, what feels sensual, what might feel acceptable or pleasurable. And, and, you know, in the context of sexuality, that may include um, self-stimulation, self-touch. That may also just include starting with fantasies, thoughts, memories, just giving oneself time to um, kind of take a pause from day-to-day life and say, let me just take some time for myself to really reconnect, you know, with this part of me that I've kind of put on hold for a long time. So really important to be able to figure out what works for you um, often before you can even start to explain that to a partner. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, we're summarizing the sexual health includes sexual health with yourself, with others, and it comes in a different spectrum that we vary from person to person. So Mary Jo, you and I were early involved in, in the Shoal study, and we have been advocates for this. Why is sexual health and sexual care important while caring for people with lung cancer? Well, we've already heard a little bit already about how impactful sexual dysfunction you know, can be, and it is a huge quality of life uh, problem and associated with depression and relationship issues. There is a recent lung cancer you know, symptom track that also tracks symptoms with patients with other kinds of cancer too. Um, but sexual dysfunction was ranked as one of the most troublesome symptoms for people. So it, it really is something that can affect quality of life. And uh, the Shaw study focused on women, and we'll talk a little bit about more about that later. But it's particularly important as women. And as you mentioned, you know, our treatments are better now. But more young women are getting lung cancer than young men, and women are typically living longer with lung cancer, which are great things, uh, but without this part of their lives addressed, you know, we could be missing out on an opportunity to make improvements for quality of life. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, when we started the conversation about sexual health and lung cancer, I heard from many colleagues that oh, um, uh, sure, um, this is literally, I'm <laughs> making the exact, exact, exact sounds that um, I heard. And I think one of the challenges we have that as oncologists, we have received minimal to no training in sexual health. Can you share with us, how was your training experience when it comes to sexual health and cancer when you were a fellow and during your first years of faculty? So I would say that my training has mirrored the typical oncologist experience you described. Um, I had no formal training in sexual health, how to ask these questions. Um, for me, learning more about the issues helped me ask better questions and then tend to the, you know, those areas of patients' quality of life. I did attend a, a program as right after a fellowship called uh, Onco Talk, which you know was useful to lay the foundation of how do you start discussions with patients, how do you get at issues that really are affecting them? And, you know, certainly it can have implications for patients taking their medicines as we think they're taking them. But a big aspect, as Sharon mentioned, is that that quality of life. Um, but I would say that certainly we are under-trained in this part of our, our, our work lives. Mary Jo, along those lines, do you think as your experience grew in the area was like the more you talk about sexual health with the patients, the more comfortable you felt and 
the patients feel more comfortable talking to you. I think that's right. The more one talks about it, the easier it it becomes. And I wouldn't say I am certainly the best at doing it, uh, but it's something I've been working on improving. And I think that's very important. I, you know, I share with our listeners that I didn't have much information. I have no much training um, in a patient, you know, led to this interest. And now I have a bowl full of lubricant in my clinic. And I think that opens the conversation too. It's like, oh, I actually had a patient on Monday that asked me if that was candy. Uh, and I say, <laughs> it depends how you see it. It all depends how you see it. Because <laughs> we have different flavors. Um, mm -hmm. And then that just opened the conversation immediately. And I was like, okay, let's talk about this. So, mm -hmm. Sharon, knowing that medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, and many of our listeners have zero to very little training in sexual health and cancer, as an expert in the field, where can our colleagues go to learn more about sexual health? And where is the place to start? Because now with so much information online, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, no, it's it's again an important question, and it's interesting because you know there were there was a time when um, you know there were really no guidelines about this as well, and I just want to point out that you know we now there are guidelines, right? The you know uh, ASCO, uh, the NCCN, you know, all have uh, guidelines around asking patients about sexual health, and yet to your point, um, people don't actually have any real training, right? We we we've, we've certainly done studies looking starting in fellowship. Nobody gets any training about this. So the question is, what do you do? Where do you start? And I think that first and foremost, you know, the good news is that there are now you know significant numbers of of resources that are sort of that have been developed so certainly if you even you know look at growing organizations such as the uh, the scientific network on female sexual health and cancer um, the uh, you know large sexual medicine societies you know ISSM the the international sexual medicine society you know there are a number of regular resources in terms of webinars and courses that are offered where people can get uh, information. There are lots of websites, you know, that have a lot of information. But I want to point out that most importantly, oncologists do not need to become sex therapists. And I think that this is part of the um, the worry, right? That if we start to ask a question, then, you know, somebody's going to endorse a problem that feels way bigger than something that I know how to deal with. And I think what's important here is to give people the message that, um, to your point, the, the goal is to start the conversation. The goal is to be able to allow patients to share what's bothering them, what's concerning for them, and then to figure out what are the resources that you may be able to offer. So I don't think that the goal is to be able to become a, a, a sex therapist or a, or an expert in, in, in GYN care, but it's to know who are the colleagues that you may need to refer to and to know some of the simple strategies, right? As you described, like for example, having a lubricant in your office or being able to talk about some strategies for vaginal dryness in a basic sort of way that can at least help people get started. And then to get, again, sort of giving them that roadmap for where they might need to go or where they could go if they need more help. Thank you so much. And I think talking about sexual health 
and cancer and all honesty is like going to the gym the first time you talk about it you know it's sore you're like <laughs> second guessing your choices but the more you go to the gym the more you talk about sexual health the more comfortable you feel so moving well, things to go ahead. sorry and i just want to say sort of on that note you know what i also think is interesting is that when we do surveys with patients with survivors they will say i don't say anything because i don't want to embarrass my doctor i don't want to make my doctor uncomfortable right and physicians when we do surveys will say well i don't want to make my patient uncomfortable so it's kind of like the elephant in the room but what it's what's always interesting is that not only is just sort of practicing, you know, how to ask certain things gets more comfortable, but what most people find is that patients are relieved when you ask, right? So if you say lots of people have changes in sexual function, I'm wondering if there's anything that might be bothering you. When your patient looks at you and says, oh my gosh, thank you for asking, right? It also helps motivate you to want to do that the next time because you realize that people are very grateful um, to be able to have that conversation. That's very important. And I have a follow-up question for that because we also have patients and caregivers listening to the podcast. We talk about the guidelines and ASCO and NCCN. Where can patients and caregivers go to get some information about sexual health and cancer? Again, we are, I am delighted that there have been so many more resources that have been developed um, for patients and caregivers now. So certainly, um, for example, through the Macmillan Cancer Center uh, in the UK, through the American Cancer Society, through the National Cancer Institute in the United States. There are very comprehensive resources online for patients and caregivers that give not just descriptions of problems, but that really offer pretty good detailed uh, information about how to manage uh, common problems for men and women after cancer treatment. Thank you so much. And as you were saying, many of our colleagues feel, you know, that they may have to know more or they have to know everything about mm -hmm. sexual health. And that's, I think, an obstacle to start the conversation in the clinic. Abs absolutely. So what is the power and the importance of multidisciplinary care when it comes to the treatment of sexual dysfunction or sexual issues for our patients with cancer? Well, the truth is, you know, lots of things get disrupted, right? That can get in the way of 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 uh, satisfying sexual activity. Um, sometimes they're physical. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they are uh, has you know interruptions to relationship dynamics, and depending on what those kinds of things that get disrupted, there really may need to be different people involved to, to give support. So for example, if somebody's having very significant vaginal dryness that is not um, easily managed with an over-the-counter vaginal moisturizer, they may, for example, need, may need, a woman may need to use some kind of um, local vaginal estrogen um, that would need to be prescribed by a professional. And there may be that oncologists aren't used to that. So, you know, working with a nurse practitioner, working with a gynecologist, uh, working with a urologist who specializes in sexual medicine, you know, it's important to build uh, a community of providers who can help people with um, the issues related to sexual dysfunction. Here at the Dana-Farber, well, we have a very multidisciplinary group that includes, for example, pelvic floor physical therapists. We work very closely with our physical therapy colleagues to help men and women who have changes in uh, 
sort of pelvic health on the other side of cancer treatment. And that may be from treatment-induced menopause, right? So there are lots of ways where we assume that things are not one-stop shopping. And that's the case also with sexual health. We have to have a team of providers that can sort of help as needed. And it's important that, you know, again, you don't need to have a multidisciplinary sexual health program, but you need to know who in the community or who uh, you can refer to um, as needed. Thank you so much for for that. And this is my last question out of the script. What is the difference between a vaginal moisturizer and a vaginal lubricant? It's a really big difference. And I'm really glad you asked that because most people don't know. Um, a moisturizer, well, let me start with a lubricant because what most people hear is, oh, you're having pain, use a lubricant. And there's a couple pieces I want to say about that. One, a lubricant is just something that makes the surface slick and reduces friction with sexual activity, but it really doesn't help with vaginal dryness over time. So in the same way that lots of people are familiar with putting cream on your hands in the wintertime or moisturizer on the face, before you go to bed at night, there are um, there's a product of uh, a category of products called vaginal moisturizers, which are really formulated to hold moisture in that genital tissue over time. Um, there have been a number of studies showing that they're very effective and really for any woman who is in menopause, whether that is treatment-induced menopause or menopause in general, um, we assume that people are going to have some vaginal dryness. And I just want to point out that can be both um, frustrating in terms of sexual activity, but that can also be frustrating without sexual activity, right? Whether you're having itching or dryness or discomfort. And it's really important to know what you need to know to keep that tissue healthy. So certainly a moisturizer, um, really in a regular sort of way, two or three times a week for most women, is really important in terms of just being able to have a GYN exam comfortably. It's not only about sexual activity, but it's about taking care of your body on the other side of menopause. I want to sort of say one other thing, NJ, which is that it's not only about... Um, uh, you know, genital health. I, I think that what often I'm struck by is that people all often will just hear like one little piece of the puzzle. You know, somebody will say, oh, you just need to relax or, oh, use a lubricant. You know, we don't really talk about sex from a whole person perspective, right? We don't think about what that means to be able to feel comfortable in your body, what that means to be able to communicate with the partner that you love them and you miss a certain aspect of your life, but you feel nervous. You need to kind of start slowly and you have to maybe develop a new repertoire for how to be together. And that might mean almost like dating again, even if you've been together for a long time. So what I would encourage people, both individuals who've had cancer and people who treat people with cancer, is to think about this from a whole person perspective and to not try to reduce all of this to like a soundbite, but to invite people to figure out what is different, what might be bothering them, and what are the different pieces of the puzzle that might need to get put together so they really have a roadmap forward. Thank you so much, Sharon. That's so helpful because I didn't know the difference between the two until I decided to, you know, jump in this large study. And this is actually the second time in this podcast only that I'm talking about my own research and it's about the SENSE study, which is the SHOW study. The SHOW study is a sexual health assessment in women with lung cancer study. And this study is truly a baby that was born thanks to ISLC. So, mm -hmm. and 
2019 in Barcelona, I met with Dr. Amy Moore for the first time. And I told her, um, I think I really want to start sexual health in my women because they're facing so many issues. And that same meeting, I went to Mary Jo and say, what do you think if we would study sexual health in patients with lung cancer? And what I'm very thankful is that I was a fellow and Mary Jo was like, yes, let's do it right away. Mm. So it couldn't be possible with this. Um, I'm gonna summarize some of the results of the study and Mary Jo, you've seen this study since the conception, so I would love to get your input. So the Scholl study interviewed 249 women. We end the go-to lung cancer registry. We use the patient reported outcomes measurement information system for sexual function and satisfaction measures questionnaire, also known as PROMISE. And the try the study was supposed to open in March of 2020, but a little mm -hmm. pandemic got into the middle. You remember those emails, Mary Jo? It was like, it looks like we have to change a little bit, but we were able to launch in June 2020 um, and recruit for a total year. Despite the pandemic, we were able to recruit these 249 women. 67% had a stage four lung cancer. 54% of those women reported having recent sexual activity, which is defined as we end the 30 days of the survey completion. But we noticed that 77% of the women indicated little to no interest in sexual activity. And 48% reported minimal satisfaction with the sex life. Mary Jo, why are studies like this show study important? And how will you, as a thoracic oncologist, digest the results of the study? I think the high recording of problems with interest, problems with sexual dysfunction, and then if you, you know, read the, the other results from physical problems that uh, women reported that they thought were interfering with their sexual dysfunction, it's really striking how common it is and something that we really should be asking about. And what I like so much about this project, which you did an amazing job with, is is uh, how it was, you know, conducted. The we we're able, you were able to use the uh, go to for lung cancer, you know, foundation as sort of a platform where, you know, patients could go and, you know, answer the survey questions. So they didn't have to be a member of the foundation; they had to set up an account. But basically, being able to read and consent to the survey and identify as a woman was the only real criteria for entry. Um, so we had some certainly selection bias, you could argue, you know, for women who chose to fill out the survey. Um, but just the overwhelming percentage of uh, people who, who filled it out that had issues in this area to me was just striking. Mary Jo, what do you think what were some of the challenges of getting these data to the show from the show to the clinic so our colleagues can understand that this is a real issue and should be addressed? I think educating providers about how to bring up you know, the topics could go far. Some of the suggestions that Sharon gave, I thought were excellent, you know, with disseminating resources where it's an easy way to refer patients if they want to look at patients or, or partners if they want to look at some more information on this subject. I think that would be helpful. 
I think the professional societies and I think the patient advocacy societies, you know, can help to make this issue front and center with links that can be easily disseminated or clicked on, you know, to provide a bit of information that that could be either a starting point for a discussion or addressing, you know, patients' concerns when, when the topic is brought up in clinic. Thank you so much. And I think if we continue to spread the gospel of sexual health and lung cancer, or they will get tired of us, or they will start asking their patients about sexual health. I'm also going to just pipe in here to say that, you know, I'm so glad the two of you did this important study because I think for a very long time, there's just an assumption that the ways that sex gets disrupted is if you have some kind of a sex organ cancer, right? Breast cancer, GYN cancer, prostate cancer. But we know that that's not true. And yet so few people have actually done the work to show that in the way as comprehensively as you have. So um, I'm so glad that you did that. That because it really sheds light on the fact that, you know, it, it's not only um, f- for people who've had a cancer that affects a, a sort of an obvious part of their body, right, that we associate publicly with sexuality, but it's actually much more comprehensive than that. Thank you so much. And this is a great set way for my next question to the two of you. So in the study, we identified that the most common reasons negatively affecting or participant satisfaction with their self sex life included fatigue, feeling sad or unhappy, shortness of breath, or vaginal dryness. Mm-hmm. So Mary Jo, how common are these complaints in clinic? Because we can see if these are the issues and how often do we see them in our patients? I think fatigue is a, a big factor. And what is notable about the study that you designed is that it is a more modern study. Um, you mentioned COVID-19, certainly that's modern, but also that it happened after patients were now taking targeted therapies, immunotherapies, which have really become so integral to our treatment of lung cancer. Um, so I think fatigue is is really a huge problem. I think that there are aspects of psychosocial distress with the lung cancer diagnosis that can impact sexual function and, and vice versa the other way around. Certainly Sharon's an expert here on that subject. Uh, but I, I would say that these these symptoms really are quite prevalent and under under asked and understudied. Sharon, what are your thoughts about these as the top four reasons patients reported or participants reported that they were affecting their satisfaction with their sex life? <laughs> Yeah, well, what strikes me is that, you know, it's not a coincidence that these four aspects are all correlated together, right? That the reality is that we know when people are, um, when people don't feel well physically, when people don't have have a lot of energy, when people have fatigue, right? It's hard to be in the mood to do lots of things, including um, you know, sexuality, right? What what I find important and I really want to stress is that um Often, even if you just allow people or give people the kind of support that they need to make an improvement in any one of those domains, there's often a domino effect, right? If people feel that they, if, if you know, if people are able, if certainly if women are able to have a sexual activity that is comfortable, 
I will say that people are a lot more motivated to have sexual activity, right? If people are um, have a, a kind of, again, a roadmap for how to manage fatigue, for how to um, to sort of work around some of the barriers, then people may find that it is actually um, that there can be a way to sort of see sexual activity, again, more broadly speaking, uh, as something that is both sort of comforting or interesting rather than sort of something that feels overwhelming and and out of reach. So I would say that, again, it's not a coincidence that these aspects are all connected to changes in sexual activity, but what it also does is it gives me multiple opportunities to be able to help people make a positive difference. And I think that it's really important to recognize that you nobody can do everything all at once, but even being able to find some simple steps or simple strategies to make some improvement in any of those domains, it is likely that people are going to find other domains also improve as well. Thank you so much. And this is my next question is off the script. Mary Jo, do you think the focus on these needs is higher now because we have patients even longer than before. I think a lot of aspects like sexual health, financial toxicity, mental health, and lung cancer were put it to the side because our patient's survival was so short. But now I have a patient right now with metastatic lung cancer that she's in her 12th year of, mm -hmm. of, of therapy. Do you think that is what has made the big change about bringing these subjects to the forefront? I think that has helped to address these issues in lung cancer because, as you mentioned, people are doing better. I think that there has been a systemic shift to really addressing psychosocial oncology in our patients with screening questions and trying to tease out which patients are struggling and, and actually get those patients support. Um, so I think that at the same time has helped too, where you know, we're used to now acknowledging that aspect of someone's care plan. And I think, you know, extending it to sexual health, you know, for lung cancer, for patients with lung cancer who are living longer can only improve their quality of life with their sexual health, but also with the extra symptoms that can go along with it. Thank you so much. I can talk to the two of you for hours and i think we probably have done it in person uh, so but we're coming to the end of the episode so sharon i have a question for you what are the three things about sexual health and lung cancer that you wish all colleagues should know well first and foremost it is not as overwhelming to talk about it as you might think i think that in general um that when people worry that you're going to embarrass or make your patient uncomfortable it's really important to recognize that patients are overwhelmingly grateful if somebody just gives them an opportunity to share what's on their mind. Second, that many of the issues that people are struggling with can be addressed by some very simple strategies. So, you know, to your point about uh, whether that's getting some very concrete help to help women address vaginal dryness, to learning that there are moisturizers different than lubricants and that that's a very effective strategy, um, to being able to give people the message that sexual dysfunction is not something they have to live with forever. This is not a, a high price people necessarily have to pay 
long-term, but that there are actually supports, resources available that allow people to continue to have um, a sexual life that can be satisfying. And I, I can't help myself, but I want to just add that that might look different than it used to, right? I'm not trying to assume that there aren't going to be things that may look different, but if we can be creative, if we can think broadly about sexuality that allows people to be able to expand their repertoire and be able to sort of be creative in the face of some of these losses, then all of a sudden it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but that people can still have um, many ways of being able to give and receive pleasure. And as you said, if you're living and living longer, what's the point if you don't have quality of life? And this is one of the ways we can help preserve and improve quality of life. Thank you, Sharon. Same question to you, Mary Jo. What are the three things about sexual health and lung cancer that you wish our colleagues should know? The first thing I would say is that it's something important to ask about and potentially finding a workflow in women's practice could, could help whether some of these, you know, potential side effects are discussed upfront while discussing a new medication or a new treatment program or not. I think asking is the big thing. Um, number two is, you know, finding your friends to help you manage uh, these, you know, reported symptoms to best address them. As Sharon mentioned, with gynecology, psychosocial oncology, the um, people who who can help. And the third thing to remember is that these discussions, you know, given the prevalence out there, can be really quite impactful. Thank you so much, ladies. As we are coming to the end, any additional information that you would like to share with your audience? Sharon? I would just say that if um, from the patient or caregiver perspective, if your team, if your provider has not brought up the topic, do not assume that it's because there's nothing that can be done if you're struggling. It means that you have to be proactive, that you have to um, get online, that you have to do some reading and you have to ask for help. Even if your doctor doesn't bring it up first, that's okay. You need to say, listen, this is something that's on my mind. That's different. That's bothering me. And I need some help. And can you help me find those resources? Thank you. Mary Jo, any additional information for our audience? I think this has really been great. And I have certainly learned a ton. And I hope that these discussions get continued. Thank you so much, E has been my pleasure to share this space with you. I would like to thank Dr. Bobber and Dr. Fittler for their time and recommendations. Thank you for having me. And I'm so grateful to the work that both of you have done to move the field forward. Same, same for me. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope you will tune in regularly and give us a listen. You can find us in Spotify. You can find us also at islc.org under the news room tab and find this episode and more episodes as we continue to discuss what is important in lung cancer. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org and our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.